here's a new global trend that you might not have picked up on. In February 2017, the estranged half-brother of North Korea's dictator is waiting for a flight at the airport in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, when two female assassins spray VX nerve agent on his face, causing him to feel dizzy, collapse, and die before the ambulance carrying him can make it to a nearby hospital. Then, in March 2018, two Russian operatives attempt to assassinate a defector, Sergei Skripal, in Salisbury, England, by exposing him to a military-grade chemical agent known as Novichok. And this month, dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi enters the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and never leaves, amid reports that he was brutally murdered, his body and fingers dismembered by a team of assassins dispatched from Riyadh. What do these cases have in common? All three victims were political exiles living abroad and were targeted by agents of the despotic regimes they fled. Is this the new normal? The preferred way for authoritarian governments to deal with pesky dissidents in the 21st century? One other common denominator worth mentioning. The regimes of all three countries that carried out these attacks are run by leaders for whom President Trump has had kind words. North Korea's Kim Jong-un, Russia's Vladimir Putin, and Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. As we sort out the latest murky news on the Khashoggi case, we'll discuss the new wave of 21st century state-sponsored assassinations on today's Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Danny, when we used to be at Newsweek, uh, we worked for a magazine that prided itself on capturing trends before anybody else did and putting them on the cover. Um, I suspect uh, this would be our cover for uh, uh, Newsweek if we were still there, uh, the new normal on political assassinations. Yep, Evan Thomas uh, writing <laughs> writing it with as much uh, lurid detail as possible. And yeah. I will say, you mentioned three assassinations. They always said it takes three for a trend. Yeah. Um, but look, it used to be that carrying out a, a state-sponsored uh, murder on foreign soil was one of these red lines that uh, nation states, uh, you know, rarely, if ever, crossed. And it doesn't look like that's the case anymore. And uh, you, you got to yeah. ask the question. Uh, which uh, our guest uh, uh, last week, uh, Jamal Khashoggi's uh, good friend, did, whether these despots feel, you know, increasingly like they can act with impunity 
um, in part because uh, Donald Trump has, ex- you know, has got this kind of devil may care attitude about these kinds of things. Right now, it's worth mentioning, uh, of course, that this didn't begin under Donald Trump's watch. Uh, one could go back to 2006 when uh, Alexander Litvinenko is poisoned to death in London by Russian agents. Uh, but uh, the fact is uh, that um, the United Kingdom did not, res- or, nor did anybody in the West, respond particularly. Forcefully to the assassination of Litvinenko uh, at that time, and that may well have sent a strong signal uh, to Putin and others around the world that you could get away with this. But there's clearly yeah, there, been there, yeah, an uptick. There, That's there, I mean, what's but there are differences. Here. I mean, there are differences between. I mean, I, between uh, those cases and and this one, um, and I, I really think that it's a kind of combination of the grisly nature of this, uh, you know, still suspected, not proven crime, but it's looking more and more like it was a murder, um, and, and how it spilled out into the open, and that, that's kind of shocked the conscience um, of, of the civilized world. And one of the kind of more ghoulish details uh, that came out this week was from this uh, audio uh, that uh, that the Turks say they have um, of uh, what actually happened in that uh, consulate. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's that this Saudi forensic doctor who was allegedly part of this uh, 15-man Saudi assassination team, um, at, you know, at one point he, he says to his fellow hit squad members um, that uh, they ought to listen to music. He says this while donning his own headphones uh, while uh, doing... Uh, doing their work uh, to sort of ease the tension um, while while uh, dismembering, um, you know, their victim's uh, uh, body. And right. uh, it, to me, it was sort of reminiscent of that, that line from uh, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, the banality of evil. There's something about that juxtaposition of what they were doing, allegedly doing, um, and uh, you know, listening to music that is just kind of horrifying. Yeah, and and one other detail is the uh, Saudi consul uh, who admonishes the hit squad, please don't do this in my presence, can you take him outside, Uh, which was... Yeah, right. It's not like he, he, he obviously he's not having any pangs of conscience about this. <laughs> right. He just doesn't want to be you associated could, with you it. You could get me into some trouble if you do this here, please. <laughs> and and it's worth mentioning that that consul uh, has since left Istanbul and is unavailable for questioning by at least the uh, Turkish investigators. But look, the larger point here is uh, you know, everybody now is watching how the White House is going to respond to this. Um, the visual of Secretary of State Pompeo flying to Riyadh, meeting uh, with uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, smiling, seeming like he was going to the most routine of diplomatic visits uh, when, in fact, he's supposedly there to get to the bottom of a grisly murder uh, was quite uh, disjointing uh, to watch. Uh, so the question is, um, is if... All the signs point to this being a state-sponsored assassination ordered from the very top of the Saudi regime. Uh, Is President Trump and the Trump administration going to respond uh, sharply? And uh, will will this affect our relations with Saudi Arabia? And the fact is, we don't really know the answer to that question right now. Yeah. No, I mean, there was a small indication today that maybe— uh, the Trump administration um, is beginning to 
um, kind of get the message here. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, um, today when we recorded this uh, podcast, uh, announced that uh, he would not be going to this Saudi investor conference in Riyadh. Um, a lot of kind of uh, high-level business people and media companies withdrew from the conference um, in, uh, because of how awkward <laughs> the whole thing is. And, and he took a long time to make that decision. Um, and my guess is um, his boss, Donald Trump, uh, uh, didn't want him to pull out. But finally, the pressure was too great, and they, and they did. So we'll see uh, what that means uh, in, in, you know, in terms of what their ultimate response will be. But it's a small sign that they're, they recognize how awkward uh, <laughs> and, and speaking of uh, awkward I should mention that that invite I got uh, which I mentioned last week's uh, on last week's episode to the Saudi National Day celebration at the Saudi Embassy which was supposed to be uh, the day today the day we're recording this October 18th uh, uh, has been canceled the invitation had come from the Saudi ambassador by the way the younger brother of the crown prince uh, uh, but apparently he's flown back to Riyadh as well. Uh, so I will not have the opportunity to enter the Saudi embassy uh, and uh, get to the bottom of uh, what the Saudis are up to. Not in a partying mood. Not in a partying mood. But um, uh, we do have um, somebody who has uh, been following this story as closely as anybody uh, is a really plugged in reporter, uh, Shane Harris of The Washington Post coming on. So let's uh, let's listen to his insights uh, on this. Shane Harris, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. I am so such a big fan of this podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we are honored that you could join us. So um, you uh, wrote uh, that the Trump administration and the Saudis are trying to come up with a way to um, uh, explain the death of Khashoggi without implicating Crown Prince uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. How are they going to do that? That's going to be a great trick to pull off <laughs> because there is think. so much circumstantial evidence from U.S. intelligence reporting to analysis on social media to passport records and other things that are pointing towards Mohammed bin Salman being, if not the one who ordered this operation, then being somebody who was definitely aware of it and certainly wanted to get Jamal Khashoggi to lay hands on him and to detain him. So it's going to be a real trick to somehow say that Mohammed bin Salman didn't know anything about about this, particularly since if you talk to people who know how he works and how the Saudi government works, he's a micromanager. I mean, he is somebody who has his hands very firmly on the wheel when it comes to implementing all these reform policies, overseeing the government. The idea that a group of rogue actors, 15 people in two government planes in different groups go to Istanbul to pull off an operation like this and he's completely blindsided, I think it just, you know, it seems so implausible to the experts and the, and the officials we've talked to. So and Shane, the, the the I mean, having covered the Middle East, um, the the one area of the government that Arab leaders tend to have, uh, you know, micromanage the most is their is their in intelligence apparatus. So there's that, and then there's some other. Uh, first of all, so I, I gather the story will be they're trying to make a distinction between uh, uh, detaining. Uh, and maybe you know, uh, you know, executing a rendition, bringing bringing Khashoggi back to Saudi Arabia, uh, torturing, interrogating, all of that, and actually murdering. Uh, yeah, right? I think there's there's signals that that's maybe where it's heading. You know that the the story might be, and I think the New York Times even has some reporting on this this afternoon on Thursday afternoon when we're talking that. 
you know, it might be, well, he was meant to be interrogated, but things went too far. Now, of course, do you always bring a bone saw and a forensic pathologist to an interrogation? <laughs> like that's that's yeah. a new one. Um, Not so, being a professional interrogator, <laughs> I, should say, yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know, but I, I don't recall seeing bone saws in uh, enhanced interrogation techniques that the CIA was carrying yeah, on. Even we didn't authorize that right. one. That's that, that's right. right. But you know, Dan, I think you're, what you're pointing at is that there might be some sort of story about an operation gone wrong, which then might sort of try and be in the middle of Mohammed bin Salman knew nothing versus he ordered the plan. Something in the middle might be a little more credible. But there, too, the problem is going to be, well, we know that Mohammed bin Salman, based on U.S. intelligence intercepts that uh, of Saudi officials, wanted to get Jamal Khashoggi back to Saudi Arabia and detain him. And there appear to be other efforts by some of his allies to try and actually do that by talking to Jamal, luring him back from Virginia. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, he knew nothing about this plot to go out and get him at the, at the consulate, or he didn't think it was going to go this far. But he was very clearly, uh, according to the intelligence that, that we've been briefed on, trying to get Khashoggi back. Uh, and this was something he'd been doing for some time. So, I suppose you could then say, well, let's pretend that they say, well, they didn't. MBS didn't know the interrogation was going to turn into uh, a killing. The point is, though, he still set in motion efforts months ago to get this guy back, and doesn't he bear responsibility for his fate in that case? Okay, but why would they have gone to these lengths? I can understand trying to get him back. Um, he's writing stuff in the Washington Post that's extremely awkward, that's critical, um, and. Um, you know, getting him back, interrogating him, you they could have interrogated him back in Riyadh. They didn't have to do it at the consulate. It's still baffling as to why they would have gone to these lengths in Istanbul or gone to these lengths at all. Right. And that's why I think to that point why the idea that it's an interrogation gone wrong doesn't hold up. You send 15 people on two planes to interrogate a guy, that doesn't make any sense. The bigger question is why Jamal Khashoggi? Why was he such a threat to the Saudi government that they wanted to to silence him in this way? And I think you guys had a podcast a couple of days ago talking about, you know, that Jamal was an insider, but he also wasn't a bomb thrower. He wasn't advocating for uh, a regime change or trying to plot a coup against Mohammed bin Salman. So why go to these extraordinary lengths at all? Like, why did MBS see him as such a, as such a threat? That, we well, don't know yeah. the answer so look- to that yet. Well, yeah, I was going to follow up on that and just want just ask you, uh, uh, in the course of all of this great reporting that you've done, what have you learned about MBS that would provide some clues to that, or or is it just a mystery? Well, now here I'm going to put my psychologist hat on maybe for a little bit, hmm. but you know, it, well, yeah, what would the CIA profilers be this, saying? I guess is yeah, the, the CIA profile of MBS would be the following, which is very at odds with you know the picture you would get from watching him on 60 Minutes, uh, which is that he is. Uh, hugely ambitious. He is ruthless. He is, if not naive, he is perhaps reckless. Uh, And he has ascended at a very young age up the chain of command to become the heir apparent in a very fast, aggressive way that has neutralized many people who are more senior than him, including people who are very close to the intelligence establishment in the United States. So he's not dumb. I mean, he is highly effective. But the CIA officials who and other intelligence officials who I've talked to about him over the past you know, couple of years, really, see him as somebody who is not really in control. I mean, he's he. Seems, it seems uh, it seems like he's he's impulsive yes. and a bit of a hothead. Yeah. And actually, the, the analogy I think about from Hollywood is the Godfather. Mm-hmm. But the Don 
would not, you know, he 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 appointed um, uh, Michael uh, to be his uh, successor, and not Sonny, who was the hothead and who was impulsive and who was emotional. Yeah, no, that's a good analogy. MBS well, Sonny was so- whacked at the end of the first Godfather, so I don't know that he had much of an option. Yeah, and MBS is def- is not right. Michael, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they think the the profilers would agree with you on that. And he's also somebody, you know, of you know extravagant tastes. I mean, he bought you know the world's most expensive yacht. He bought through a cut out the world's most expensive painting at auction. Uh, and at the same time, he's pushing this, you know, uh, uh, anti-corruption campaign yeah. and locking all these corrupt people up in the Ritz-Carlton and shaking them down for billions right. of dollars. There's always another side to the coin. There's the, you know, I'm promoting policies that are allowing women to drive, but at the same time, I'm locking up people, the women who were actually pushing that uh, effort because they threatened me. And he also kidnapped the uh, the president of Lebanon. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Which was a bizarre move. Um, yeah, and right? I think that's something too. With that, that you know, in, if you're again, we're looking at the profile. They're looking at the things he's actually done, right? And there are so right. many extraordinary and reckless things from the Americans' point of view, really from probably many people's points and countries' points of view, that point to this as somebody who is, I think, in their view, not prepared for the enormous responsibility that he now finds himself in as the heir apparent and effectively running a country. I mean, there's, I think, fairly strong indications that King Salman is perhaps not exactly the most uh, <laughs> kind of out of with it, it or, yes. <laughs> of kings right now. Yeah. Uh, so MBS is, for, uh, for all intents and purposes, is running Saudi Arabia. And, and yet, I mean, the Trump White House has banked a lot on yeah. MBS um, on so many levels. I mean, we all talk about Jared Kushner's relationship with him, uh, trying to bring him along on the uh, Mideast peace plan. But more centrally, I mean, the, the principal focus of uh, Trump foreign policy in the Mideast has been to stigmatize Iran. Saudi Arabia is Iran's mortal enemy. They have done everything to beef up Saudi Arabia, solidify ties with Saudi Arabia. It was the uh, it's where President Trump went on his very first visit. And this assassination, if that's what it is, which it certainly looks like, is quite <laughs> awkward uh, development that gets in the way of what the Trump White House wants to do uh, in terms of uh, going after Iran. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's not too much to say that the White House has outsourced much of its foreign policy in the Middle East to Saudi Arabia and to Mohammed bin Salman. And Jared Kushner manages that relationship. And he is the one who has gone around the administration, another young uh, upstart <laughs> prince with not a lot of experience yes. in, in statecraft, and tried to convince <clears throat> veteran national security and foreign policy people in the establishment that Mohammed bin Salman is someone they can trust. And we've already kind of talked about what their their view of this is. I remember when I first started really paying attention to, to Muhammad, it was I, when I was talking with a senior U.S. intelligence official who said, the thing you have to know about MBS is he has this elevator speech where he talks about everything in the region being Iran's fault. Everything runs through Iran. And of course, it's a very Saudi-centric view. But the fear was that when the new administration came in, already hostile to Iran, that simplistic kind of you know bullet point elevator pitch was going to resonate with Jared Kushner and with the Trump people. And it seems like it did because they're saying, yeah, exactly. That's what we're looking at. He's got it. He knows what he's talking about. Let's go with him. 
But there's another side to this, Shane, which is uh, that's the kind of geopolitical side and, and how, uh, you know, the Saudis fit into the whole Iran equation. But for Trump, it's also just purely kind of transactional. And he sees sees all of this through a lens of deals and, and money. And, you know, he's it sounds like he's obsessed with, you know, what would happen to the hundred billion dollars in, you know, in arms deals? And, and what happens if the Saudis turn off the, the oil spigot? And, you know, which obviously is a, you know, would be a serious concern. But I mean, um, I don't know how much he's thinking about geopolitics and how much he's thinking about, like, you know, we still got a lot of money we can make out of this, this uh, you know, this piggy bank here. Yeah, when you hear him talking about the reasons why, you know, we need to maintain the relationship, he doesn't speak about it in terms of statecraft. He speaks about it in terms more of commerce. I think the president right. may actually believe that $120 billion could just be kind of sucked out of the GDP immediately. I'm not sure he understands the way these contracts are structured. These are multi-year arrangements. You know, they're not right. buying $120 billion in a shopping cart at one time. But, you know, Dan, you're right. I mean, he sees it through that kind of a lens. And, you know, and to be frank, given how the president has talked about the press in this country, uh, I'm not so sure that he's seeing the case of Jamal Khashoggi as an assault on the free press or freedom of expression. Uh, uh, you know, I think this is more a disruption in the kind of, you know, the deal making that he likes to do. And frankly, I think that his son in law is exercising tremendous influence over him on this. And uh, is, I think from what we understand behind the scenes, Jared has constantly throughout this crisis been saying we cannot abandon Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, he's still he's still uh, helping to craft. Uh, the response, and he's, you know, as far as we know, he's probably still uh, texting uh, MBS on, on, WhatsApp. on their encrypted, <laughs> on their encrypted WhatsApp. But yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Shane, um, and this goes to, you know, uh, what the uh, Trump administration's, uh, you know, response is going to be ultimately, and how much pressure they're under right now. One of the uh, things that I thought was interesting about your your piece. Uh, your you know latest piece in the in in the paper in the post uh, was you had there were a couple of quotes from uh, Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. who of course is uh, Trump's uh, kind of staunchest defender on on cable news, and he uh, you know w- uh, you know did not make it sound um, like uh, they were going to necessarily get out of this uh, uh, this uh, uh, this fix all that easily. I think Isakov, you got the quote. I do. There. I was just uh, thumbing for it. Uh, uh, the only question is, was it directed from the crown prince or the king, or was it a group that was trying to please him? Yeah, leave it to Rudy to just tell it like it is, man. You know, speak your mind, Rudy. First of all, uh, why did you call Rudy in the first place on this? What, what well, actually, you, to credit to my uh, my great colleague Carol Lennig was actually yeah. talking to him about some other things. And okay. she's right. like, what do you think about Khashoggi? And then whoop, there yeah. we went. Uh, but, you know, what he also said in addition to that, that quote is, uh, you know, within the White House, people had decided basically more than a week ago that the Saudis did this. I mean, there's no real, as Rudy's telling, and I think this tracks mm-hmm. with other reporting we've done, it's not as if. You know, many officials in the White House are sitting there going, gosh, maybe the Saudis didn't do this. I mean, everyone understands what the score is. And I think, as he put it succinctly, the only question maybe in their mind is to what degree was Mohammed bin Salman responsible for this? Let me ask you about the Turks, because, uh, look, all the grisly details about uh, what happened to Khashoggi have come from leaks from the Turks, uh, uh, you know, from audio recordings and, and, and video recordings. But we haven't seen or heard them. Um, And that does make some of us suspicious about why we are trusting these 
Turkish accounts when they can't provide the evidence that they're based on. Yeah, and I think this has been really problematic, both in the way that you know the investigation has gone, and it's been—I'll I'll be totally honest—it's been very difficult for us as reporters because this is where the information is coming from. What I've tried to do is, you know, go to my sources on the U.S. side and say, okay, look, how are you reading this based on the conversations you've had with the Turks and what they describe is in this? Because as far as I know, uh, unless it's happening, you know, in, 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 in lower levels or in Warrens that we are not seeing, which is possible, no one on the U.S side has gone through and analyzed this recording. Uh, Do they so, even have access to it? My understanding is no. In fact, Secretary Pompeo was in uh, uh, Turkey yesterday and his spokesperson said he had not heard the tape. Uh, and they were very keen to make sure reporters understood he has not heard the tape. So I don't get that. You I don't know, either. They, if you're <laughs> is FBI, that because he hasn't agent? asked to hear the it, tape? Is, that, yeah. is it because he hasn't asked we, to hear that the tape? That we don't maybe, know. Maybe they don't. We pressed on that yeah. and they, we didn't get an answer. The most we're getting is he hasn't yeah. heard the tape. Because um, maybe they still want a little plausible deniability. I, I do think that, that is what's going on here. And I mean, in talking yeah. to, to, to officials in, in, in allied countries as well, that is their read that the White House does not want to get in front of Saudi Arabia and the CIA is not going to get in front of the White House. And so let's just wait and see how the investigation goes. But that's really unusual. I mean, normally you would imagine the intelligence agencies saying, give it to us, give us a day, we'll assess it and we'll give you our opinion. Of course. And, and why haven't the Turks released it? Uh, I think there's a couple of plausible reasons for that. We don't know exactly why. One, from the beginning, has been this whole question of sources and methods, which feels to me like that's basically been blown apart now. Like, if you really have recording from inside the consulate, then, you know, basically every consulate in Istanbul is going to be right. ripping that place down to the studs to find your bugs, if that's how it happens. So yeah. that kind of, that cat's a nice ring bag. to it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I also think, you know, Let's be honest. It's a little bit of leverage that the Turks have, right? If they really do have this audio and it is as graphic as they claim it is and as several people claim it is, um, it would be awful for the Saudis to have that out there to be you know, uploaded on websites for people to listen to. So maybe it's their way of saying – because I mean, remember, what is Turkey going to get out of this is a big question. That's a bit of a card that they have to maybe leverage the, the Saudis uh, to come to some accommodation with Turkey. So are there going to be consequences for the Saudis um, out of all this? Is, is the Trump White House prepared to do anything um, that punishes the Saudis for doing uh, – for, for murdering a, uh, a journalist who was based in the United States? Yeah, it, it's not clear that they are. The president has said there will be very serious consequences, but the president says a lot of things. Um, certainly he will face tremendous pressure from Republicans and Democrats in Congress to do something. And now the Magnitsky Act has actually been triggered as part of all right. this, which is really interesting. Um, it's not clear to us that the White House is preparing – anything uh, really severe. Uh, it may be that they look to the Saudis to make some internal corrections. There's been chatter about maybe Mohammed bin Salman will be demoted to deputy crown prince. Kind of find that one hard to believe. <laughs> Is he going to demote himself? And they move back up Mohammed bin Nayef uh, to, to be crown prince? I mean, prince? hey, wouldn't that be like, you know, like yeah. the, uh, the ultimate uh, Netflix series ending if, you know, the, the longtime <laughs> CIA ally who he neutralized ends up right. taking Although you know, I, I a position I have been again. told that there were some personal issues with MBN, Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, uh, that was the, the reason he didn't get 
the job or wasn't able to stay in the job. Yeah, there's been rumors about, you know, is he does he have a drug problem? Exactly. There are defenders of his who say, you know, he might be on pain pills because he was you know severely injured nine years ago in an attempted suicide bombing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there were other things at play here that I'm sure MBS took advantage of. I mean, right. he clearly understands the court and how it works. But in terms of like what we're hearing from sources coming out of the administration, it's not clear that there is sort of a, a you know, a package of sanctions uh, or any concrete actions. Now, that could change. And I think it's going to depend to some degree on Congress and how much pressure there is for them. I mean, we're heading now foreign policy usually doesn't play in elections and certainly not in midterms. But this is just a big, ugly mess the White House has to deal with heading three weeks into an election. And yeah. maybe they want to get I mean, Congress off their back. I mean, if nothing else, it could be a, a big distraction yeah. and it could kind of muddy the message of candidates out there. I wanted that. We're going to have to let you go. But I wanted to ask you one follow-up question on some of the reporting you you, you did uh, last week and sort of see where that stands. And there were questions about um, how much U.S. intelligence officials had picked up about this plot, um, this alleged plot, and when they knew it. Did they know it in real time? Did they know it earlier? And did they have a so-called duty to warn uh, if they had information that uh, Khashoggi could uh, in any way be harmed. Where, where does that stand now? Do you have, is there new reporting on that? Has that issue kind of been resolved? I don't think it's been resolved yet. And part of the problem here has been that some of the lawmakers who want access to the intelligence have actually been having trouble getting it, um, which Senator Corker complained about yesterday. Um, our understanding is that the reporting that contained these, you know, uh, the, the, this information that Mohammed bin Salman was uh, putting, you know, ordering a plot to lure Jamal back to Saudi Arabia, that reporting was generated prior to the time that he went into the consulate in Istanbul. What's not clear is if anybody noticed it or if it really elevated up to a point where some policymaker was going to take action. So in that sense, it's what's not clear is whether it was, as they say, discovered historically, which is, okay, this guy went missing. Go back through the records and see if we have something on him. And, oh, geez, look, here's something that never percolated up to the level of a policymaker. And and, and the standard is duty to warn if there's grounds to believe he was going to be physically harmed. That's right. And whether a rendition... uh, Taking him back to his home country would qualify as that, that is, is against a little, his against his yeah. will. Right. This yeah. this, this, this gets into the murky. line is like what's kidnapping versus what's rendition. And I talked to a former senior intelligence official who said, "Look." If there was an interpretation of this information such that this looks like some kind of element of due process, like he's going to be arrested uh, or charged with something, we probably would not view that in the duty to warn category. Uh, you know, but if it was he was going to be killed, absolutely um, grave physical harm. It's actually I think it's dismembered. It's, well, yes, dismembered that would, counts. That would qualify. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, right. it counts. As, and, I th- and, uh, and then right. you get into the question of whether kidnapping and rendition, right. like what side of the line that you're on. Given his prominence, though, you would think that you might err on the side of warning yeah. him. Yeah. One last question I want to get your thoughts on. We uh, uh, opened the show with uh, uh, you know, potential uh, new trend out there. February 2017, uh, the exiled half-brother of Kim Jong-un is assassinated in the uh, Kuala Lumpur airport. Uh, March of 2018, uh, Sergei Skripal is, uh, uh, is exposed to uh, a chemical agent by Russian operatives for the purpose of assassinating him. And now we have this. Uh, is this the new trend? And, you know, just as a extension of that, um, you know, doesn't that make how the Trump White House responds to this all the more important? Because if you don't send a message uh, that this kind of activity is unacceptable, it just means we're going to see more 
uh, state-sponsored assassinations. Yeah, I think it does look like a trend. And you mentioned like three leaders that all have something in common, which is they're, they're hot-headed. And, yes. and, 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 and for whom Donald Trump has said kind words. <laughs> well, he's in love yeah. with one of them. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, so, so, so he says. But I mean, I would even like go back to the even the, the, the idea behind the question is, does the White House need to do something forceful to respond? I think a lot of foreign policy experts would say yes. Yeah. But the question I have, too, is whether or not these actions are an outgrowth of the fact that there is this culture of permissiveness that the White House has that, and the president have created, which is essentially to say, we're not here to tell you what to do in your countries. Uh, you know, we're not necessarily going to push back on it forcefully. The president uses pretty aggressive bellicose rhetoric on his own. I'm not saying he is, you know, causing this to happen, but is he sending a signal to these countries uh, that you can get away with this and this is not something that's going to invite a really tremendous response from us? I think the arguably answer to that is yes. And, you know, whether MBS took this action because he thought he could get away with it, we won't we don't know right now. But certainly unless the president were to forcefully come forward at this point now after three of these incidents and say something, I think you could credibly say that the United States position is, you know, you can assassinate and attack people on foreign soil and we're not really going to say boo about it. Um, Shane Harris, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you were great and we'd love to have you back. Anytime. I love the show. Thanks, guys. Thank thanks, you. Shane. That was great. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. We are now joined by uh, Dick Clark, uh, wise on all matters involving Saudi Arabia. Dick is the former counterterrorism advisor to President Bill Clinton and for a while President George W. Bush. Uh, he is the uh, president of Good Harbor Consulting, the chairman of the Middle East Institute, and the host of the uh, new podcast, Future State. Uh, Dick Clark, welcome to Skullduggery. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Podcast podcast. Um, so look, we have been uh, delving deep into the uh, uh, fate of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, it uh, seems to be a pretty grisly story, and a lot of people are wondering where all this is headed uh, and what the implications are for the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Give us your take. Well, I think it's uh, extremely likely that the outcome of the various investigations will reveal that he was killed by uh, Saudi uh, intelligence officials in the consulate in, in uh, Istanbul. Uh, the question then arises, who ordered that, uh, who approved that? Uh, and uh, I'm not sure we're going to get too far on that uh, part of the investigation. Um, but we, we can assume that it was fairly high up. Um, the, the idea that it was some rogue uh, decision seems extremely unlikely, given that this sort of thing has never been done before uh, by the Saudis. Uh, this was an extraordinary act. Uh, what does it mean for U.S.-Saudi relations? You know, U.S.-Saudi relations are important um, to both countries. Uh, they go back to Franklin Roosevelt when he met the, the king of Saudi Arabia. The Saudis can do a lot of good uh, in the Middle East if they want to, uh, and they can do a lot of harm uh, if they want to. Um, they're a great economic power. They're a great political power. We had hoped that they were beginning to do a, a domestic reform uh, that would make them more of a 21st century country. Um, but that reform was being driven by the crown prince. And the crown prince 
uh, may be implicated uh, in this murder. Dick, uh, let me ask you this because, you know, you have been uh, inside uh, the White House uh, dealing with – uh, very sensitive national security matters and uh, managing very uh, sometimes difficult relationships, including with the Saudis. So I want you to maybe uh, uh, think a little bit about uh, if you were in um, the White House now, uh, how how you think you would be thinking about about this issue. Um, uh, clearly, uh, you you worked in more sort of traditional or normal uh, administrations. Um, but um, I'm sure you would be outraged uh, by what happened. But wouldn't there also be an enormous amount of hang-wringing about the implications of a serious, uh, you know, the potential for a serious rupture in the relationship? And wouldn't that incentivize you to find ways to, um, you know, go back to business as usual as quickly as possible? How would you, th- how do you think you would, uh, uh, you would deal with a situation like this? Well, I think you know, if, if I were advising a normal president um, uh, in this situation, what I would say is, look, we didn't want this to happen, um, but it's happened. And we have to accept that reality and all of the consequences that come from that. Congress is not now in any near future uh, going to approve major arms sales to Saudi Arabia. So forget that. Uh, don't even try that. And tell them that. And if you lose some arms sales, fine, you lose some arms sales. You know, well, we're not uh, an arms store that's open for everybody to buy everything all the time. Uh, we never have been. We've refused sales to people in the past, even though it cost us jobs. We've refused sales to the Saudis in the past, even though it, it cost us jobs. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is America is unlike other countries uh, in that our great strength uh, on the international scene has been, until Trump at least, um, some degree uh, of, uh, of moral standing. Uh, even with George W. Bush, who got a lot of criticism correctly for the Iraq war mistake, I mean, he was doing some good things, like uh, you know, the AIDS uh, HIV initiative uh, that kept millions of Africans alive. Uh, we are different. We stand for something. We're not just a piece of geography. We're a political idea, and that political idea includes the rule of law. Uh, we can't just walk away from that and become amoral uh, and still have the power on the international scene that we had. So we have to do something. And that something uh, probably includes a, a cooling off in our relationship with Saudi Arabia until and unless uh, they come clean. And uh, there's accountability uh, rather than impunity. So you mentioned before we haven't seen the Saudis do something like this before. Uh, of course, they've you know, uh, uh, executed uh, and beheaded uh, people in their own country, including political dissidents. But uh, Khashoggi was a journalist. He was based in the United States. Uh, this was on foreign soil or in a, in a foreign country. Why would they have gone to these lengths against him? Explain. Well, what that's you, what we're uh, all wondering. Right? Give us. That's yeah, what we're all wondering. What do you think you know, is the, most of us at the root of this? Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, I'm the chairman, as you said, of the Middle East Institute, a Washington-based think tank that's been around for 75 years. Jamal came to our meetings. Uh, he was on our panels. Um, he was a well-known figure in Washington. He was an employee uh, of the Washington Post. 
Uh, he was a what we call a U.S. person, uh, meaning he had a green card. He was a permanent resident alien. Um, there's never been, in my memory, a case of the Saudis uh, killing someone who fills all of those boxes, um, doing it in a, a NATO country, uh, and then you know chopping him up in pieces and putting him in a box. I mean, it's it's, it's just unprecedented, and the. You can't come up with a rational reason. You can try to put yourself in the shoes of a decision maker, but it, it never gets to a rational decision. Um, maybe they were trying to send a message to other dissidents uh, that uh, this is what happens to you uh, and we'll get you wherever you are uh, and no one can stop us. We have impunity. You know, that's very reminiscent of Putin uh, going after uh, former spies and diplomats and, and dissidents overseas, because clearly that's the message that Putin wants to send. You can't, uh, you can't run beyond our, our ability to kill you, and we can kill you and get away with it. Well, Dick, if it turns out uh, that uh, MBS um, had foreknowledge of, of this uh, decision to kill uh, Khashoggi, um, uh, what does that say about uh, the uh, the effective ruler of Saudi Arabia, and um, what does it say about his ability to continue uh, ruling um, in that kingdom? Well, I'm not sure we'll ever really know um, if if the crown prince made the decision or not. But we might luck out and have intelligence uh, that is uh, definitive. Um, if we do, how could he not have known about this? How could he not have known? Well, about this? we may never know. Do we assume? Oh, sure, we assume. Uh, it's not the kind of government where people make this kind of decision on their own uh, at a level below him. I wouldn't think. Um, so, uh, yeah, we can assume it, but if we don't know it, that presents a different issue, because in the absence of evidence, uh, we can say, well, you know. It's not proven. We don't know. Um, and I'm sure, the, I'm sure this administration will try that. Now, the Congress, of course, uh, gets briefed. Uh, at least the intelligence committees get briefed on questions like this. And the intelligence committees can say, show me all uh, the intelligence. Show me all the intercepts. Uh, show me all the human reports. Uh, and if it turns out that one of those intelligence reports is definitive uh, about uh, who made the decision, uh, well, then there's a, there's a there's a more difficult problem uh, of accountability at that point. And if it doesn't, um, and no hard evidence ever emerges, but the strong suspicion is that he had a hand in this, uh, do things eventually just go back to, to uh, you know, we go back to, to business, back to normal? Not right away. Um, I think there's a scenario, and um, it may play out in the next few days, there's a scenario in which uh, they throw someone under the bus. Uh, they say, oh my God, the intelligence minister did something awful, and he's been fired, and uh, people under him have been arrested, and they've been sent to jail. Uh, and of course, you may never know whether or not they've been sent to jail, but they may replace a minister. Um, and if we don't know that it went above him, we may just have to accept that. Um, but even at that, uh, I don't think things go back to normal uh, right away.
I, I don't think they uh, publicly disclose who ends up in Chop Chop Square in Riyadh, do they? Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, they do. They do normally say. They do. Yeah, when they, when they, uh, when they have uh, public capital punishment, they do normally say who it is. So, so if, uh, if they hold people accountable here, we should uh, expect the execution of uh, whoever was in the consulate? In, no, uh, no, no. I would never expect that. You know, if they, if they throw someone under the bus, I think the, you're going to see perhaps a minister changed out. You're going to see some people tr- allegedly tried in secret trials and allegedly sent to jail. Uh, we'll never really know if they were or not. Well, it, it is murder. Do, do they not have capital punishment no, sure they do, for but they're not uh, gonna, murder? They're not going to do it. I would be shocked beyond even the shock of what they just did uh, if they... Uh, took some of their intelligence officers involved and uh, and uh, and killed them. What I'd, do you be, think, I'd be very surprised. Dick, what do you th- think the domestic implications in Saudi Arabia are uh because you know you is is there a scenario uh under which uh this destabilizes uh the the kingdom and and the royal family you know over time even oh, yeah. begins to lose lose its grip on power that that's a kind of a nightmare scenario right I mean I heard uh, Tom Friedman of the New York Times talking about you know the possibility perhaps remote but of Saudi Arabia becoming a failed state you know with all those oil reserves and and an ideology no, that's, that's not going to happen that's not going to happen that's not going to happen yeah. that's not going to happen uh, Tom's smoking something there but no no what what could happen. Um, there's probably a you know less than ten percent chance uh, that the king replaces the crown prince, uh, and that creates a certain number of problems. One of them is his reform programs, which we like, uh, opening up the the country in limited ways and and changing the, their dependence on oil and doing all sorts of good things. Uh, that reform program might die if he were no longer the crown prince. Who would become the crown prince? Possibly someone who would bring them back to more traditional conservative ways. You know, this crown prince has taken the religious police and kind of uh, put them in a box and said, you know, go away. Don't uh, don't continue to impose strict religious uh, rules on the country. Uh, this crown prince has said uh, Wahhabism, the type of Islam, the type of Sunni Islam that has been practiced in Saudi Arabia, uh, is wrong. It's too uh, too strict, too traditional, and uh, he's taking the country away from Wahhabism. Well, somebody else's crown prince could walk that cat back. Uh, so... Well, a lot of people say they want this crown prince out if he were involved in this decision. I think it's very important uh, about who would replace him in the unlikely event that happened. Let's talk about the implications here in the United States. Uh, you know, the Saudis have been famously throwing money around Washington for years, for decades, uh, including think tanks. And I'm looking at the list of contributors to the Middle East Institute. No, we, we the, received, uh, think tank we received that you had. yeah, we received yep. a uh, an unrestricted uh, donation of two million dollars two years ago uh, from the from the Saudi embassy. Uh, and we declare that publicly. We declare every donation we get publicly. Uh, we only take unrestricted donations. And also donations. from Saudi Aramco, I believe, is an annual contributor of up to a million dollars. Oh, I wish uh, I wish it were. Uh, but no, it does contribute, uh, okay. but nothing, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing like that. Um, 
So are you going to continue to take Saudi money? Well, not at the moment. Um, uh, we had a board meeting uh, this week uh, to decide on that, and the, the board was unanimous that no, under the current circumstances, um, we don't think that it's appropriate for, uh, for us to take Saudi government money. And we pulled out of a cultural program in New York uh, this week uh, that we were co-sponsoring with the Saudi embassy. Um, you know, the only way that, that the Middle East Institute is willing to take funding from foreign governments is if they're unrestricted grants uh, and if they uh, acknowledge our statement that uh, our scholars have academic freedom. And uh, we never uh, want a donor, you know, be it a human individual being uh, or government, to call up and, and say, you know, do this or do that, and, and I don't like that tweet or I don't like that report or I don't like that guy being on the panel. We've walked away before from government money. Uh, we had a big. So just program. to be clear, do you return some of that $2 million that you did receive a couple of years ago? No, no, we spent it. We got it two years ago. Um, we had, you know, a program for a long time where the Turkish government uh, funded uh, programs on, uh, on Turkey and the U.S. Uh, and then they didn't like some of the panelists that we had on, uh, on those programs because they were critical of Erdogan. Uh, and we told them, you know, that's, you don't get to choose. Uh, so they stopped the funding, and uh, we continued having the program. So we continued having critics of Erdogan. Uh, I think it's, it's very important uh, if you're going to take donations from, uh, from foreign governments, and we kind of have to. The understanding is clear that they don't get any control over our scholars. So do you ex expect we're going to see more of this, other th think tanks cutting, uh, refusing to take Saudi money? And how long do you think that lasts, if that's the case? Well, I don't know. Uh, other think tanks are, frankly, more mercenary. Uh, I don't want to name names. Uh, and then there are some things. <laughs> Why not? Well, you know, I think that's unfair. Please do. No, no, I think that's unfair. But, uh, but there are other think tanks that, you know, like the U.S. Institute for Peace uh, and the Wilson Center, that take money from the U.S. government, uh, and therefore, you know, they don't have to uh, compete for foreign grants. Um, you know, we take mainly uh, grants from, uh, from Americans, from foundations, uh, American foundations, um, but we also are willing to take grants from the, from the EU, from Norway, from, uh, from other countries that are... Um, interested in supporting the things that we're already doing. Uh, Dick, I want to ask you one more question about the Saudi-U.S. relationship, because there you know, may be certain things that happen in, in the wake of, uh, of, this, uh, of this episode um, to, to cool down the relationship. Uh, but uh, I'm wondering if there are other things that are going to stay unchanged. And one of the things that you know as well as anybody is, I, I guess, how important that counterterrorism relationship has been over the years and the military-to-military -military relationship. Um, t talk a little bit about um, how important that relationship is um, and uh, whether, uh, you know, it could be jeopardized uh, in any way. Because one thing I think, um, you know, some people may remember is 15 of the 19 uh, al-Qaeda terrorists uh, were Saudis. And uh, that's something we never, you know, we, we didn't get any in intelligence passed along that prevented that. Now, that may be a fair, may, may not be a fair criticism, but, um, but, but I think people out there, they always hear this about the importance of the relationship. They don't necessarily always understand it. 
Well, we did not have a good intelligence relationship with the Saudis before 9-11. Uh, I was running it. I was uh, frustrated as hell by them. Uh, they were not telling us enough ab uh, about Al-Qaeda. Uh, and they were, they were in some ways in denial uh, about the Al-Qaeda threat, even after 9-11, uh, until the uh, Al-Qaeda bombs started going off near the royal palace. Uh, but they did get religion, uh, no pun intended, uh, and went after Al-Qaeda in a big way. It wasn't always good. Uh, it has been since, oh, you know, 2003 or so. Um, military cooperation, well, it was certainly good in 1990 and 91 uh, when we protected them from an Iraqi invasion after the Iraqis occupied Kuwait. Um, but we don't have any military bases in Saudi Arabia. We don't have any U.S. military stationed in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so the military relationship we have with them is much less uh, than it is with, for example, the other Gulf states, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, the UAE. You know, in those four states, we have permanent U.S. military. Um, as long as we're, we're talking about 9-11 to some extent, I want to uh, uh, remind some of our listeners that you have uh, spoken of a bit over the years about a story that Clyman and I first broke, which was the fact that uh, two uh, uh, two of the 9-11 hijackers uh, were traced by the CIA coming into the United States before 9-11, living openly in San Diego, and they never tipped off the, uh, the FBI. The CIA didn't. Uh, and uh, you have concluded that that was deliberate by the CIA, that they purposely kept the FBI in the blind. And so the question is why they would have done so. Were they protecting the Saudis? Was the CIA hoping to work for, with the Saudis and think that the Saudis were going to watch these guys? And if that's the case, did something go terribly awry? That's not just that I've concluded. I mean, the, the CIA inspector general issued a report on this. Uh, the chairman of the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee uh, has, uh, at the time, Senator Graham, uh, has uh, spoken extensively about this. Numerous FBI officials have testified about it. Uh, let's state the facts and then you know, say what, the, what my theory is. The facts are that two al-Qaeda members uh, came into the United States and shortly thereafter, the CIA became aware of that. Uh, they knew that they were not just run-of-the-mill terrorists, um, but they were, in fact, involved in plotting uh, attacks that had already occurred. Those two um, al-Qaeda people were then approached by someone who may have been a Saudi intelligence officer, uh, according to the FBI. Um, the CIA was aware uh, that they were in the country, uh, was aware for over a year. Uh, over 50 uh, CIA officials knew it. Uh, they never told me, even though I received a daily briefing, uh, often by the CIA director himself. Um, they never told the FBI. The liaison officers that we had put from the FBI in CIA headquarters, were told they couldn't tell anybody else in the FBI. There was an intentional decision not to tell me the FBI. All right, why? 
Well, I think the obvious reason is uh, if I had known or if the FBI had known, uh, these guys would have been arrested right away. And for some reason, the CIA did not want them to be arrested. And you can, I think, only conclude one thing, uh, that they were following them um, or hoped to flip them uh, and failed to do that. Uh, and at some point, uh, weeks, well, I think a week before 9-11, uh, they realized that they had failed in that effort and they really didn't have them under control and they told a low-level FBI official. Um, now, the problem is the CIA is not allowed to operate like that inside the U.S. Only the FBI can. Uh, so it's possible uh, that CIA used Saudi intelligence to approach them uh, under a false flag, perhaps pretending to be al-Qaeda sympathizers. Uh, and maybe the Saudi intelligence at the behest of CIA uh, was running them uh, in the U.S. In any event, uh, the CIA officials involved, including the director, have all denied all of this uh, theory under oath. Uh, so if the theory is true, they've committed perjury. Uh, if the theory isn't true, it's hard to come up with another explanation of the facts. And, and, and bottom line, do you believe the Saudis were aware of their presence in the United States and aware of what they were up to? This is a guess. The Saudis were aware that they were in the U.S. because the CIA told them that uh, and that they were doing a favor for the CIA and trying to flip them uh, or monitor them. Uh, do I know, do I think I know, but uh, at some point the Saudi intelligence people figured out what they were doing? I don't know. To what degree of certitude uh, uh, do you have that uh, if that information had been shared uh, and they had been picked up by the FBI that the plot, uh, the, the 9-11 plot would have been ro ro uh, rolled up? No, you can't say that. Mm -hmm. in, ret in retrospect, it's hard for me to to say what I would have done, but I really don't know. I mean, you can't reliably run the clock back. Well, you likely would have done something, right? I mean, well, if you'd known that there were two al-Qaeda uh, terrorists inside the United States. Well, if I'd known that there were two al-Qaeda terrorists in the United States, I can say definitively I would have had them arrested within the hour. Um, but uh, would we have been able to break them uh, and learn from the various threads that we could uh, pull that uh, there was a larger plot uh, and break up that plot? I don't know. Uh, Dick, uh, uh, I want to ask you about uh, Future State. Uh, as a fellow podcaster, uh, tell us what Future State is and uh, what sort of uh, episodes you've got. Now, Future State is right now a 10-part um, podcast series. Guests like uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Madeleine Albright, Susan Rice, uh, Terry McAuliffe, Seth Moulton. Uh, we have a cyber war uh, episode. We have a, uh, a nuclear war episode, episode on the, uh, the Trump assault on the media. Um, what we're hoping to do, what I'm hoping to do, is get dialogue going about the issues that we would normally be discussing, uh, things like, uh, you know, should we be spending a trillion dollars on a new nuclear arsenal? Um, uh, are we adequately defended against cyber war? What do we do about the rise of fascism uh, that is clearly going on around the world? Then there's, of course, the issues that Trump introduces himself, like the fact that he is engaged in an assault on the media. 
Uh, and what does that mean for, for our country? There are discussions between me and experts I know and, and people I've worked with and, and people I've worked for in government. Uh, and uh, so far, we're getting a, a good uh, response. Well, Dick, uh, apparently we're out of time, but thank you for uh, coming on Skullduggery and good luck with Future State. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dick. Fascinating conversation. We really appreciate it. Thanks to Shane Harris and Dick Clark for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. and then Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. We'll talk to you next week. 